Assalamu alaikum, what's good everybody? You're listening to Curfew Radio on Area 3000 with Itty, recording from Mianjin, Yagera and Turbal Land. Hold up. What is Curfew Radio? Curfew Radio is a podcast that discusses the contemporary South Asian experience within the Australian diaspora youth, using music as a storyboard. Today I'm going to start a conversation that I'm yet to hear anywhere in the Australian creative landscape, and that is Muslims in Music. Of the 1.6 billion Muslims globally, 600 million reside within South Asia, primarily in India, Pakistan and Bangladesh, although in other places too. As such, Islam is the second most practiced religion in South Asia after Hinduism, meaning that while not exhaustive, its social and political influence is significant. Muslims have been in Australia since the mid-1800s. Many of the Afghan Kamaliyas, which actually encompassed people from the western part of the British Raj of India or contemporary Pakistan, were naturally Muslim. They were brought over by colonial Britain as navigators and freight transporters. They set up Australia's first mosque in 1861, some married into their own communities, some married into indigenous communities, and direct descendants of these Kamaliyas are naturally still present in Australia today. Yet, despite predating the arrival of many Europeans, the visibility of Muslims in Australia to this day is very poor, represented only by a handful of public figures and sports people. High-profile Muslim representation in the music industry, however, is basically non-existent, and as such, Muslims involved in Australian music can feel very isolated. So joining me in today's episode to chat through all of these themes is Aora-based close friend, collaborator and Muslim woman. She's the host of Saturday Sunset on FBI Radio, as well as Youth Vice President of the station, host of Bypass on Skylab Radio, one half of Boiler Room alumnus Honeypoint, founding member of Curfew, DJ and events curator. Pleasure to be talking to no other than Deepa. Salam alaikum, Deepa. How are you? Salam. So good. I'm so good. So glad to be um, having this conversation because absolutely... Um, no one, no one talks about being Muslim in music. Yeah, we've been waiting to have this conversation for a minute now. Um, I'm glad we're finally having it. And you're correct. Um, this is a conversation that isn't had often in the Australian context anyway. Um, and we're having it now. So let's go. Now, at the time of recording this interview, which won't be the case when it actually airs, it's Ramadan. So Ramadan Mubarak as well. Ramadan Mubarak. Um Ramadan is something that I want to touch on in this episode, but before we get to that point, I want to talk firstly about who you are. I want to talk about um, the things that you do, um, your heritage, your culture, etc., etc. Um, you know, a big agenda for me running this podcast is that we want to de-essentialize the South Asian experience and showcase the nuanced differences that exist between our cultures while also then drawing upon areas of commonality as well. Um, and in order to do that, we need to talk deeply about where we're from and, you know, what are the sort of uh, the structures in our lives um, that define who we are and who, what our culture is. So tell me a little bit about, first of all, you. Where did you grow up? Where were you born, etc.? So I was born here uh, in Australia. I was born in Sydney. My parents, um, my dad, he's from Bangladesh. My mom is from Pakistan. Mm -hmm. um, my grandpa, my nanu, he's from India. Mm -hmm. My nanny is from Pakistan. So a mm -hmm. lot of um, 
a big South Asian mixed bag in there. Um, mm-hmm. We used to go to Saturday school, learn banglon weekends. I did that from, mm-hmm. I think, probably when I was, like, from the ages of four till year 11, I did bangla, bangla class every Saturday. Um, my dad was, like, um, he was the vice president of the Proshar Committee in Sydney. He was, like, one of the people, like, fighting to have, you know, bangla as, like, a subject in the HSC. He did all that. And my mum, she was just a humble little Pakistani girl. And, yeah, people would talk shit. People would talk mm-hmm. shit. And, you know, they'd, be, they'd ask, they'd be like, oh, your, your parents, you, they're from Bangladesh and Pakistan, for those mm-hmm. who actually knew. And then as a six-year-old, I had no idea what that meant. I was just like, mm. but that's my mom. Oh, that's a whole episode right there. Um, the way in which various South Asian communities interact with one another. But um, I want to take a step back so that you can contextualize your family's history a little bit more. And to, to perhaps ex- uh, explain in layman's terms to, uh, to those listening that might not understand. So you said that your grandfather was from India, right? And then your family was Pakistani and then Bangladeshi. So what we have there is obviously a country and then another country and then another country that were all birthed out of one another. So can you explain a little bit about, just in quick terms, about why that is? Why is it that your family is one, two, and three? Let's start with my grandpa. Yeah, let's start with my grandpa. So he was a Muslim Indian man Mm -hmm. uh, living in India during the... During the war, he um, he came to Pakistan on a train. He was hiding in one of the like carriages as genocide was being committed, literally right next to him. He somehow survived. Luckily, came to Pakistan, met my nanny. You know, they had a very humble life. They really built from the ground up. He was a big community man, um, and so that's that context um and so my my mum's side of the family grew up in Pakistan after that my dad's family lived in East Pakistan before Bangladesh became independent and they crossed the borders when the war happened and Mm -hmm. they didn't speak a drop of Bangla at all they I don't know why they crossed I think it was I think for racial reasons I think they I think they considered um my dad's family, different race. Were they Muslim? They were Muslim, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, they moved to what is now Bangladesh. Um, yeah, and then they learned Bangla, went through the whole war thing. My dad became like, um, all of his friends would, you know, protest. and. But yeah, so um, beef and beef, my parents got together and... People talk. So for those that aren't familiar with South Asian history, I'm going to provide just a little bit more historical context, super briefly. So India and Pakistan became independent states in 1947. Prior to that point, they were both part of the British Raj of India. The history is complex, so I'm not going to go into it. But the Muslim majority states became independent Pakistan, which included East Pakistan, which was actually on the complete other side of India to the rest of Pakistan. Um, then in 1971, East Pakistan seceded from Pakistan for a host of cultural and political reasons, which I'm not going to get into because it's super complex, um, and became independent Bangladesh. Now, the creation of Bangladesh is still very fresh in the psyche of both Pakistanis and Bangladeshis. And as a result, 
both are extremely patriotic. Um, how did you navigate being both Pakistani and Bangladeshi? And what was sort of your connection to both of those cultures? Um, I don't know. I think I just, I never really liked when aunties talked shit when I was little. I straight away was just like, oh, I don't know why they're being mean. <laughs> like little, little tiny me. I just, yeah, I, I, I didn't like that culture from the get go. Um, I also thought, yeah, I was just like, look, you guys are supposed to be having chai together. Why are you talking shit? Like it doesn't, doesn't make sense when you're inviting people into each other's homes and being so hospitable. It's just, it's kind of like a culture clash. I still don't understand to this day why and how it became to exist. Um, my connection with my culture, I really strongly identified as Bangladeshi when I was younger. Um, and I think that's purely because my dad made me do the Bangla classes. He was so patriotic. He really wanted to, you know, he told us all his stories of when he was young in Bangladesh. And, um, you know, when mum would try and share, he would kind of, um, not be he wouldn't he, he wasn't happy when it was being shared because I think he still like held a tiny bit of a grudge in him because he was obviously protesting when he was super young. So talk to me about being Bangladeshi or Pakistani or both in Sydney. Um, so you were obviously surrounded more so by Bangladeshi community or you were involved with Pakistani community as well. We hung around a lot of Bangladeshi families but we did have um a really like when I when I was growing up uh the area that I lived in in the west had like a really big South Asian population there was a big um like Pakistani community and Bangladeshi community so we kind of Mm -hmm. were very lucky that we had a bit of both but we typically leaned towards the Bangladeshi side because um they were kind of the people that um, my dad had grown up with in Bangladesh or they kind of all immigrated together. So they were all kind of in the same suburb and that kind of made things easier. But at school there was there were a lot of Pakistani kids and my mum, like, just made friends through that. What were the differences, did you find, between the Pakistani and Bangladeshi communities? I definitely think the Pakistani community was more... Uh, religious yeah like in a practical sense like I mm. all the Quran classes that I went to when I was younger they were all run by Pakistanis definitely like uh, concept of like Sharam Sharam was like very more ingrained in the pa- like the Pakistani community than the Bangladeshi community see I don't really have much experience with the Bangladeshi community but that makes total sense to me um <laughs> Could you just explain for those who don't know what sharam is? Yeah, sharam just means shame in Urdu. So it's just this concept of, you know, uh, which is like, what will people say? And it's all surrounded by like, yeah. um, it's shame and guilt. And, you know, what will what will your neighbours say? Like, you can do this, but what will they say? Mm. Um, that's such a big thing. Such a big thing. Um, and that, that definitely came from the... Pakistani side more than the Bangladeshi side. Bangladeshi was more, um, it felt like it was more cultural. Like it was like about learning the language and wearing the dress and um, knowing how to read and very different. For me, one of the things that I realized is when I went back to Pakistan, it was still a thing, but far less intense than what it was here because I found that our communities are smaller and because we come from collective cultures, 
um, you know, everyone's up in everyone's business. So there was so much judgment about how people practice their faith and, you know, what people were doing and how much money they made and everything else. And, you know, whether someone's marriage was successful or not. And I just really didn't feel that when I went back to Pakistan because everyone's Pakistani. So everyone has that same culture and you can't possibly be involved in everyone's business. Um, do you find that that was the same thing here? I feel like it's, I feel like it's a generational thing. Like, our, like I feel like my cousins are heaps more chill than my parents and my aunts and uncles. And they're like a bit more open to, open to everything in general. I think they're, you know, they're open to people being a little bit less modest or the concept of yeah. religiosity, um, is fine. You know, people are on a spectrum in terms of their religion. They're like mm-hmm. open to those ideas. Whereas our parents and aunts and uncles might still be struggling with that a little bit.
पेरे पवंदी वो पेरे पवंदी सान चवंदी सान रही वन रात बंभूर अल्लाह रही वन रात बंभूर पेरे पवंदी
judgment and shame and expectation is such a big thing in our community and it's unfortunate because as a young person growing up and perhaps adopting sort of some sort of western tendencies which is kind of a survival instinct as a child right you're trying to fit in but then also being part of this other culture at home and then you kind of feel shame on both sides right because you're ashamed of your own culture like you're ashamed to be Bangladeshi or Pakistani um, or, but then you're also like, you're ashamed for being, you know, too white or whatever. What's been your relationship with shame about your own identity, maybe with your own ethnic heritage, but then also in the Australian context as well? I think I was definitely really ashamed to be South Asian when I was younger. I grew up in the West, which it makes no sense why I would feel shame because I would kind of, I did grow up in a very multicultural area. But even then, I think, yeah, my brain was just like, you know, seeing everything in the media, I was just like, okay, cool. Like, if I'm whiter, it'll be easier for me. And I think there was the added thing of me being Muslim as well, mm. where I was like, okay, cool. Like, not only are you brown, but you're Muslim too. That they're two pretty, like, hefty things to carry around. Particularly in a post-9-11 world, right? Absolutely. And even, you know, think about Cronulla as well. That, or at least that happened for us in Sydney. We had, like, the Cronulla riots. Um, and that was, like, a massive... It, that was just, like, Arabs fighting whites. And that became, like, a religiously tainted thing as well. Like, people were like, it's Muslims versus Australia and... That was really hectic to go through as well when I was younger. Um, I think I carried a lot of shame, yeah, about being South Asian and then, you know, presenting as white kind of made it easier to hide that I was Muslim and, you know, I was Muslim to, you know, people around me or people who, like, you know, had to notice that I was. But I did keep it quiet. But also I think growing up when I was... I was, and I hate to say, it sounds so cheesy, but I was very different. Um, in terms of, like, musically, I was, like, an indie kid. Like, I listened to, mm. you know, I listened to, like, indie rock when people were listening to, like, you know, pop bangers and whatever. And I think that was also me going in survival mode where I was, like, you know, this is the way I can be different and still seen, if that makes sense. 100%. You just lent into it. <laughs> yeah I'll be the brown indie kid that listens to indie rock and wears fun patterns like I'll do that and that was a way for me to yeah just be different and be okay with it and you know there was already this like kind of stereotype or archetype created that um I could just gently mold myself into. Uh, it's such a profound topic the way in which diaspora youth engage with their surroundings in tandem with their own culture um, and particularly so for young Muslim youth as well, because there's that added layer. And I'm particularly interested to know how that was in Sydney, just drawing from my own experiences of being in Brisbane or not even Brisbane. When I first moved to Australia, I moved to Ipswich, uh, which isn't a very diverse place at all. That's where the mosque stuff happened? Oh, that happened all over Brisbane. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, that's not, it's not just Ipswich. Yeah, it's Pauline Hansen country. <laughs> but anyways, um, in Ipswich, uh, it being not a very diverse place, um, you know, it's really difficult to hold on to your identity because you're such an outlier. And as a kid, all you want to do is fit in, right? 
And what I will say is as I've grown up, I've moved to Brisbane and Brisbane has started to become a much more diverse place. It's been really nice to connect with other people from diaspora communities, to share experiences of growing up away from your culture, to be a third culture kid. But still those interactions are relatively few and far between. But as far as multiculturalism goes, Sydney... Has it all. It's uh, it's more longstanding, right? And as a result of that, some communities are more well-established. So you obviously have uh, communities that have a very strong sense of identity. But also then you also have sort of outliers or third culture kids or mixed race people as well um, who don't necessarily fit into that sort of binary mold of, of culture. And... What interests me about big cities in particular is that you've got this new generation of uh, kids from multicultural backgrounds that don't necessarily have the strongest connection to their heritage. Some of them do, but to varied degrees. And within the big city, all of those cultures are kind of starting to converge. uh, And you've basically got this new generation of hybrid kids, sort of in the way that in London, you have Londoners, right? And that can mean so many different things. You've got this new generation of people that are all sort of converging together and creating this hybrid culture, which I think is really beautiful. And for me, because I personally don't fit into a binary mold, that sort of culture uh, is sort of where I feel the most comfortable, right? So how does Sydney feel with regards to that? I mean, it's definitely um, a new thing. I think the fact that, you know, curfew has had, like, it's taken so long for curfew to, you know, come about, you know, this is the first time I've seen, you know, young South Asian creatives gather together like this. You know, to me, London is just what, like, maybe like seven to 12 years ahead of us in terms of how they are engaging with their community, in terms of, you know, how long they've lived there, in terms of generations and... I really feel like Sydney's getting to this... Like, we're getting old enough now that we can um, do our own thing and, you know, aside from our parents and um, have people back us.
for some liquor, yeah, yeah I got homies in the feds, free my niggas, yeah, yeah I just got the hundred cash, it did in the air, yeah I'ma go fuck up a bag, no, that hoe can't stand that, yeah I got shooters, but I'm ducking shit Pop them up, they hit the homie sister, guess we both the loser Popo pull me over with a half a kilo in a room I can't move the same, I gotta readjust how I'm a new I reminisce that feeling when I think about it A million in the bank, I used to dream about it No heater in the whip, I used to sleep about it Up in the morning, whipping cocaine about it, yeah, yeah I got bags, oh, bitch, you fucking with me, yeah, yeah Topping glass, oh, bitch, you fucking with me, yeah, yeah Let that get your dry on the table, chopping fast slabs Porsche spider look like a spaceship, they like, goddamn, a goddamn I'm calling lamb, money ground, I'm sending bail I'm in the town, in the jail, I'm in the cell Can't see the fam, say my prayers, I'm do a lot No bacon ham, bacon ham, and coastal lobby That's all they serve, stomach hurt, the devil working But I ain't nervous, beat the verdict, but lost a million Guess life been perfect, whipping birdies, the devil working But I ain't nervous, I reminisce the feeling when I think about it think about A man in the bank, I ain't used to dream about it No heater in the whip, I ain't used to sleep about it Sleep about it, fighting with the human, think about it, yeah, yeah I got bags, oh bitch, you fucking with me, yeah, yeah With the glass, oh bitch, you fucking with me, yeah, yeah Let that yeah, go dry on the table, chopping fast slabs Watch the spider look like a spaceship, they like, goddamn Yeah, throw some nigga, yeah, 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 free my nigga, yeah, 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 throw some nigga, yeah, 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 free my nigga, yeah, 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 see man, free that nigga, yeah, yeah, hot dog. Yeah, yeah. I know how it be, man. You know, get down to that motherfucker. Yeah. I remember I was on on bail and shit. You know what I'm saying? But this, this, damn, the beat ran out. Fuck it, that's enough right there. Fuck it, I ain't even gotta talk no shit. So you said that when you were younger. You know, you became an indie person. In some ways, you acknowledged that you were different, but were still trying to, to an extent, assimilate. Yet you still didn't feel like you were part of the broader white Australian culture. Why was that? Was it that you tried your hardest to be part of it, but that wasn't received by the people around you? Or was it that you didn't feel that you were being authentic to yourself? I definitely think... Um Around that time, I had, like, one of my best friends. She was um, Indian, and she she had, like, strong ties to her family and culture, but, you know, she still had, you know, the look, yuck, and care happening in her family as well. So she wasn't allowed to, you know, go out. And I had moved out of home, so I was going out and, you know, spending time with all these uh, white people and but still hearing, you know, stories of her and her family dynamics and how she's not allowed to do certain things or, you know, curfew on, you know, mm. literally, like, going out. And, and I don't know, I just felt like... I just didn't feel at home. I didn't feel comfortable at that point. So I just became assertive enough to, like, make a change about it. How have things in your life, like, how do you feel from that point onwards? Um, what what sort of that change of direction for you or that, you know, that moment 
What's different now? Um, I remember doing, like, when I, like, noticed that, I remember counting, being like, how many uh, DJs of colour are there that I can name right now? And I named them, and there were literally, like, five in in Sydney, and it was mm. shocking. It was so bad. Um, yeah, and then I took a, a break from... Um, FBI for a little bit because we we did kind of a volunteer survey and found out that there weren't really any people of colour there and I kind of uh, I kind of disengaged because I just didn't know what to I didn't know how to process that because it made me okay. super uncomfortable um, and then eventually came back to it and kind of uh, I don't know I, I I kind of tied like the reason why I want to be in music and everything I you know like just my radio career in general like I kind of based around, you know, wanting to build community and wanting artists and DJs and people of colour to feel safe in any spaces that I talk about. Um, so, I, yeah, that, that was just, like, how I went about it. You, in that moment, felt uncomfortable and you said that you didn't want other people to be in that position and you took it upon yourself to change that. That's a really beautiful thing. And sometimes it is those moments like that. There's absurd moments where you're like, what the fuck? I know how I felt in those moments. And uh, I would just rather no one feel that ever again. Does music come into your heritage at all as far as like your connection with it? Or do you use music to, re you know, for example, with your Pakistani heritage? I know that you're a big fan of Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan. Do you, do you, you know, use music to connect with with Urdu or connect with Pakistan or, or anything like that? Yeah, I think, I think like um, when, when we were little, um, like my parents were very big music lovers. My dad would play, um, you know, Johnny Cash in the car. So he, he used to love country music. My mom, um, my mom used to love like Madonna and ABBA and, but then they would both listen to gazelles, like, yeah. like Pakistani folk music yeah. and they would like you know we had the little cassettes and I had my favorite cassette and we would just like play it on the way to like visiting my auntie or whatever and that was just like that was a big part of like a formative part of my life mm -hmm. um and my my dad he used to play the harmonium so yep, he beautiful he would whip it out at every birthday party do you just want to explain to people what the harmonium is? It's kind of like an accordion, but very much bulkier and a nicer sound. It's horizontal instead of vertical. But yeah, beautiful sound, but he would whip that out and, you know, he would do like the sare gama, which is do re mi, but South Asian. Yeah, and then he, he had this like tiny little harp thing. I, I don't even know what the actual instrument was, but it was like a tiny... Uh, I'm going to say South Asian harp. I don't know what it's called. Um, that, you know, he had like kind of sheet music for it. And I would, he would make me play that at birthdays as well and just kind of strum happy birthday and sing happy birthday to my siblings. Um, so I had those. And then my mum would be singing in the background and that was really nice. And then I also grew up doing choir when I was uh, year two or something, when I was like eight years old. And I did that for like a lot of high school as well. So, and then I would also make mixtapes when I was young. So lots of music, um, not necessarily South Asian, but there were definitely little places where it seeped through. Yeah, and I, I think I found more South Asian music probably um, after moving out of home. 
and that was purely because I realised I hadn't really like learnt the names of the songs my parents used to sing, and so I did the hefty research myself, and I would be like, you know, I, I text my mum on WhatsApp, and I'm like, Ma, do you know this song? And she'll be like, oh, I used to listen to this when I was, like, six years old. Or, like, your grandpa used to listen to this when he was um, a teenager. And so it's reconnecting in a totally separate way from my parents, which is mm. kind of nice. So tell me this then. Music is very clearly a big part of South Asian culture. Yet it seems amongst a big contingency of the South Asian immigrant community that music is not a viable career path or that music is a waste of time or that you shouldn't be focusing on music, you should be focusing on doing something else. And this is something that we're actively trying to address with Curfew in our mission statement. One of the primary points is that art matters and it's actually an integral part of our culture. Why is it that diaspora communities with such rich musical traditions and particularly from my experience anyway, Muslim diaspora communities from South Asia, and this is obviously not across the board, but why is there active encouragement for the next generation to not engage in music? I think it's probably um, the culture surrounding music, no? Like the Western culture surrounding music? Absolutely. I think, um, you know, even if I explain to my parents what, you know, the kind of raves I'm going to, they would think it a completely unsafe space or even the parties I'm throwing, they would consider that unsafe because they just don't, you know, there's a, there still is like a generation gap um, in terms of, you know, un- understanding what we're doing to create safe spaces. I think they don't have that concept yet. I think that will t- take time to teach them and maybe time that we don't really have mm. um, for them. You know, if there are drugs or if there's even alcohol at an event, you know, we come from Muslim families, you know, if alcohol was around, straight away my parents would just um, not want to go and, you know, make that very uh, distinct and very clear that, you know, we're not going Mm. to places where there was alcohol. Could you just contextualise that a little bit more for those that might not be aware of Islam's stance on alcohol? So any any kind of substances that um, alter your decision-making process is prohibited or um, against Islam. And so anything, yeah, anything like drinking or drugs is a very scary thing for them. And also they, they didn't, mm-hmm. they weren't exposed to these things in their countries, you know. They, they didn't have, you know, people chewing pingers around them. They don't know what that <laughs> even looks like, you know. So... <laughs> It's, it's, but it's true. They, they just don't know what that, for them, they think What the fuck is wrong with that guy over there? (laughs) They don't know. They're just, they're just chewing, you know, they're not, um, some of them aren't harmful. Some of them, you know, of course are. And that's what they see. They see the really extreme examples on news that have been used to, you know, create the lockout laws in like Sydney. Um, which is so fair. I do not blame them for not thinking that music is a viable career. Like I fully get it. And I think it's about, um. I don't know. I the way I kind of sell it to my mum is, I'm like, look, mum, this is how I'm like connecting to you again. Like, this is a way I, I I do it. And she gets excited. She's like, she's like, what? You played Nusrat in a set? And I'm like, yeah, mum, that's what I'm about. And she she gets shocked, you know. And that's cool.
ਲੱਗਦਾ ਦਿਲ ਮੇਰਾ ਡੋਲਣਾ ਤੇਰੇ ਬਿਨ ਨਹੀਂ ਲੱਗਦਾ ਦਿਲ ਮੇਰਾ ਡੋਲਣਾ ਤੇਰੇ ਬਿਨ ਨਹੀਂ ਲੱਗਦਾ ਦਿਲ ਮੇਰਾ ਡੋਲਣਾ ਤੇਰੇ ਬਿਨ ਨਹੀਂ ਲੱਗਦਾ ਦਿਲ ਮੇਰਾ ਡੋਲਣਾ
بس الليل عملية في البيت في الأقصى عمعتها لو بكفر أصلي تدين جيب جيش فوت على الحرب اتغلب مقنابل الصوت بالتخبة تقلب أنا شاب متكتك أصلي مرتب صوت صوت نقطة زي حفلة في نص الليل عملية في البيت في الأقصى عمعتها لو بكفر أصلي تدين جيب جيش فوت على الحرب اتغلب مقنابل الصوت بالتخبة تقلب أنا شاب أنا شاب متكتك أصلي مرتب ببلاط ببلاط عم بس مطلق تنسيق تدخل على كفر عقاب بدك جيش تفوت على مخيم نحكيش اسماء اذا حدا طلب بدك جيش بدك جيش تسيطر هليكوبتر وضعك دهور نحكيش اسماء هالعمي بنتك اذا حدا فيك صور حدا شاف حدا صاف من الواقف ما بتدور لانه فلت جمعه ولا عمري كتب اسم النار ما بتدور في جدار ومن كفا استنى شوي لازم نروح بلا شي طلاي عبط في ايدي حط سلاحك شمر طلا كبير وذراعك عناي 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 قواف قواف وقواف قشنون طبقة القطر رعب اطلق نكلكش داتا بتمسخر وكنكلكش داتا بتعلق وكواف قشنون طبقة القطر العب طلقة الصدقة طلقة الملكة طلع عملي نحفر نحفر في الارض ارض ارض نطلع زي جين 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 تليفون بضل ضل ضل نحفر بالارض ارض ارض نطلع زي جين 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 تليفون بضل ضل ضل رزقكم كلكم جواسيس هيكين علينا فطاحل هذا الزمن الصعب المر اللي فيه احتدم الجدل وبطل حدا يحكم على حدا ففطاحل هذا الزمن المجروح الى قدر انا بمشي بلا روح على ربا توكل انا نوح صوتنا 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 طوطة زي حفلة في نص الليل عملية بيت في البيت في الأقصى عمعتها لو بكفر أصلي تدين جيب جيش فوت على الحرب اتغلب مقنابل الصوت بالتخبة تقلب أنا شاب متكتك أصلي مرتب صوتنا صوتنا طوطة زي حفلة في نص الليل عملية بيت في البيت في الأقصى عمعتها لو بكفر أصلي تدين جيب جيش فوت على الحرب اتغلب مقنابل الصوت بالتخبة تقلب أنا شاب أنا شاب متكتك أصلي مرتب
انا هو سيدر رجال سميتي شمس الدين كان قول انا هو الزين يلعب غير تفهم فوت منا ما تندم كان قول لك يا ابن ادم كيف تدير باش تصير في النهايه الايام يلعب غير ما تندم تجي لهنا باش تسلم Ah, 
I want to touch back on what you spoke about before regarding South Asian parents not necessarily being concerned about music itself, but rather the content and culture surrounding music in the Australian context. And it's an interesting distinction to make because to observe a lot of music from particularly Muslim South Asia, a lot of it is very spiritual, right? Not all of it. But when you listen to people like Nusrat, for example, you're reaffirming your connection with your homeland, you're reaffirming your spirituality and your faith and your culture, right? Whereas in the Australian context, alcohol and drug usage is so embedded within the music culture that we have here, amongst other things as well, that, and I don't speak in absolute form here, but engaging in the music industry in Australia could feel like a departure from South Asian Muslim culture. Further to that point, I think there has been a bit of a normalization of discriminating against organized religion in the music industry. And I can say that from first person experience that probably my faith is discriminated against more by people in the music industry who claim to be very inclusive um, than nearly anywhere else in society because for some reason there is this sort of normative standard that it's okay to bash people's religion. Um, and I can understand why that is. Obviously people have various experiences with, you know, Australian forms of religion in high school and things like that. So that's totally understandable, but also painting everybody with the same brush is not a good thing. What we do need to remember is that, uh, Religion and spirituality is extremely important still, while it might not be necessarily to white Australia, it's still very important to people of colour in this country. So I'll conclude that by saying that I personally don't believe that the Australian music industry in its current form is conducive to Muslim participation on a broad level. And I'm interested to hear how you feel about that, Deepa. What has been your experience in the Australian music industry as a Muslim? Do you remember the era of when people were super atheist and, like, bashing religion? Yeah, I do. And that sentiment has sort of calmed down a little bit, but I feel like it's still there. In my brain, I reckon that fully exists now. It's just that people, uh, like, don't vocalise it. They just hold it in their hearts. Yeah, it's been dialed back a little bit, but it's still relatively prominent, in my opinion. Um, and I've found myself in so many compromising situations, whether it's been in the smokers or at a gathering whereby people have been running their mouths under the assumption that there wasn't a person of faith around them. And for the most part, they can get away with that because that's the composition of the Australian music industry, unfortunately. But what is your experience with all of that? That was like a, one of the huge reasons why I had my... Um, Muslim identity for such a long time because it received such hate at, in like pub chat. You know, like, and... Massively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, like, I reckon that's where, dude, I reckon genuinely that's where our responsibility comes in of, like, being vocal and Muslim because it means, like, they can't do this shit so openly. You're right. That's a great way to put it, pub chat. And people are very authentic when they're having pub chat. 
And yes, you are correct. I think that we have to be more vocal about these things so that people understand and know that there are Muslims or other people of faith that are in the community because often they feel comfortable to say these things because they don't think that we participate at all. This brings up another interesting point about inclusivity at parties because I think people tend to wave around that term, inclusivity, um, without really knowing what that means. I think they have this idea of a monocultured, inclusive environment you know, perhaps as an example, something like Dark Mofo, which by the way, I'm not calling them out or anything like that, but just, you know, drawing upon an example, obviously uh, that extremely offensive art piece that they were trying to do um, is a prime example of this, but maybe a lesser transparent example of such is a lot of art that is at that festival, um, the symbolism and the sort of uh, playing on sort of uh, you know, satanic innuendos and things like that. And, you know, that's fine. That's edgy art for some people. But for others, such as myself, I probably wouldn't go to the festival because of that point. Uh, And what I'm getting at with all of this is that often, you know, people do use uh, symbolism or something like that, which may be trivial to them, but is significant to other people. Um, And they don't realize that. And as a result, they don't realize that what they're doing is actually making their space not inclusive for certain people, even though oftentimes they are claiming that the space is a hyper-inclusive space. Then it comes to what we think our responsibility is. Like, yeah, in something like that, like, did that make you feel uncomfortable enough to um, change it? Where, you know, you send an email to one of the organisers and are like, this this event makes me feel unsafe or uh, unwanted. Is it worth doing that? At what point? Yeah, it's, maybe it's about like, you know, feeling strongly enough to change those specific spaces or to create new ones that, you know, do consider, you know, re- like religion and like inclusion for people that identify with a religion or with spirituality. How do you feel about being a musician during Ramadan, particularly for you as a DJ, you're in environments that would be considered arguably haram. And for those who don't know what that is, it's non-permissible. So environments that are around alcohol and drug usage and like promiscuous sort of activity, etc. Um, but you're a working DJ and, you know, and an artist, like that's your job. And in many other ways, like you've got Muslim business owners that own restaurants and some of them serve alcohol or you even have Muslim club owners in in places as well, maybe not in Australia, but elsewhere. How is it for you being an artist, being a DJ, playing festivals, playing in clubs during Ramadan? And what are the challenges that you face in that? I guess I've kind of been lucky. I kind of, I started DJing what, in 2017 and for the past two years, you know, Ramadan and COVID have worked really nicely together in terms of like keeping me away, not away from those spaces, but like, you know, making that easier. Last year, I think um, Ramadan was during house party season for me. And that was um, so interesting because my friends are all like great DJs and, you know, it's it's hard to be um, present when you're, I, I think like, Mm. Ramadan really is um, 
for me this year at least has been such a purging um, in terms of every aspect of my life. My body's purging, my emotions are purging. And I kind of didn't notice that aspect until this year. But now, you know, reflecting back on last year, I'm like, damn, I was purging some shit back then as well. Um, being in a really different state where you're really, you know, it's a month of bettering yourself. Like you are, you're, you commit first day and you're like, I'm going to be a better person after this month. And so being in that state and then going to a house party and, you know, having your friends be silly everywhere is um, really interesting um, when you're present. Like it, it, it's really yeah. interesting to go through. 100%. Yeah. So that was interesting last year. This year it's totally different. This year has been such an emotional purge for me. Um, really just like cleansing every icky, poopy thought out of my brain. That's what's been happening this Ramadan for me personally. Um, and it's also been festival season and it's kind of the first time um, I'm playing festivals, which is really cool. But it also, I'm, you know, I've committed to fasting during festivals and I have a festival this week and I'm playing a set on Saturday afternoon and yeah i'm committing to fasting and that's going to be interesting it's going to be hard totally the energy that you sort of exert when you're behind the decks and the way that you move around for me right? um my sets are such a uh emotional thing for me like i really put my entire like heart and brain both of them into because i want I, for me the way i see my sets is like an emotional journey i want to you know, I want everyone to go through this journey with me. And I, I think I'm pretty good at that. But that means I do need to, like, put my whole heart into it. And um, after after my sets, usually I, like, need to sit down for, like, 10 minutes in silence or by myself to really, like, decompress because it's such a big energy engaging thing. It's kind of where I feel the most – it's where I feel most present sometimes – so having that while fasting is so it's it's going to be really really interesting especially in a festival context where people are you know completely engaged with you and they're committed but also in terms of just like festival exhaustion like I I got COVID like a few weeks ago and I'm suffering from fatigue as well as like Ramadan fatigue we're like nearing on the last couple of weeks and you know, your body starts to, you know, if you haven't really fully been taking care of yourself, it starts to come through. Like I, you know, I have like an up and go for, you know, like sore sometimes, you know, like it's not, it's not great, but you know, like. Yeah. You get, you get a bit lazy, don't you? In the morning, you're like initially like, all right, I've got a hydrolyte. I've got uh, 1.5 liters of water. Uh, you know, I've got all of this carb heavy stuff. I've got all of these different, and then by the end of it, you just like, oh, I'll just have a banana. <laughs> Literally, but yeah. So now I'm 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 having to think about um, what I'm gonna have to eat um, in the morning. How I'm gonna break my fast at what times? It's really cool to like um, think about that. I'll be surrounded by nature in that time, like, and yeah. you know, get to witness you know the sunrise and the sunset, which I think Beautiful. are like two special gifts that like God gives us. And, mm. you know, I felt very like, you know, um, Ramadan coincided with strawberry fields, which I was at. And that was a really spiritual experience for me. Like I felt, you know, it was like a lot of jazz music and jazz is just such, it's so spiritual to me. Um, yeah. And yeah. So engaging with that in, you know, Yoda Yoda country was 
amazing. Like, it was just unbelievable. Um, and so I'm excited for that again this week. I am lucky that my sister is coming to the festival as well. Um, and, like, one of her other friends who is fasting. So we get to do the whole thing together, which is, oh, that's nice. uh, which is so nice. It's, it's so cute. Um, but I definitely am... I reckon I would be struggling if I was by myself. But I think... Um, yeah, it's just inter- it's just interesting how it all plays into each other, especially in the last. I think considering the fact it's the last week of Ramadan, which is like the most spiritual part, the mm. s- most spiritual week of Ramadan, and also when your body kind of gives a little, I reckon that's probably why the spirituality hits a, hard, a bit harder. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just it's cool to it's cool to consider all these things. I think I'm really um, I'm starting to appreciate. Like all these little things I have to consider on top of everything else. I've, I've, I always used to think of it as like maybe a chore or whatever, but I think now I find it's. It's a blessing. It's a blessing, fully. Um, for those that don't know, Ramadan is the holy month in the Islamic calendar. So the Islamic calendar runs on the lunar cycle, not the solar cycle. So it's a different time each year, a little bit earlier. Um, it's believed that the first words of the Quran were revealed during this month. So it's the month where we fast. For those who don't know what fasting is, we wake up before sunrise, we eat and drink, and then bang on sunrise, we have to stop until sunset. And that includes water. Not even water. Not even water. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When you used to tell people about Ramadan, did you find that there would be that sort of like, what the hell are you doing that for type thing? Even now, I, I reckon some people still are like, why would you do that? Like, that that sounds dangerous. Like, why would you not drink water? That's actually... It's like, I don't... I drink more water during Ramadan than I do any other time of the year. Like, I mm. don't drink water at all. So, like, I don't know. It's just interesting to see when you pose, like, self-discipline, people are shocked. They're like, how could you? Like, yeah. I, like oh, aren't you tempted to eat? Yeah, f- of course I am. <laughs> but I don't. Yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, people are so shocked that... um. Like the fact that, you know, we have self-control. It's the fact that, you know, I'm not eating when I'm out. Or if, you know, like playing, playing a, I played a day party last week. Yeah, throughout the day, wasn't eating, drinking. People were like, whoa, like, what? Like That is such an interesting thing. And I don't know if you felt this way, but sometimes I feel like discipline is frowned upon. Um, and, you know, discipline is such a big part of Islam. Uh, if you look at Islamic musicians, the way in which, um, you know, the, the discipline of their, of their craft is so present, you can see it. It's amazing. And I'm very grateful that I've grown up uh, within a culture that teaches me um, discipline. And I feel like that is really important for my creative practice. You know, and it's particularly important because of the environments that we do find ourselves in. It's easy to get caught up in things at times. I think that's why they find it more shock- shocking because it's where completely you're right, like in a hedonistic kind of space. Um, and, yeah, showing – but some people – that being said, some people throw mad kudos to um, when we fast or, like, when I tell them I'm fasting. They're, they're like, that's amazing. I can't believe you're doing this. This is, like, really incredible that you're able to do this. And that's really nice as well. Bucka, 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 bucka. You know the devil. This is me, dog. 
Beats by Supremo for all of my people, Negroes and Latinos, and even the gringos. Yo, check it, one for Charlie Hustle, two for Steady Rock, three for the four coming live, future shot. It's five dimensions, six senses, seven from a mess of heaven to hell, eight million stories to tell. Nine planets faithfully keep an orbit with the probable ten. The universe expands length, the body of my text possess extra strength. Power lift the powerless up out of this towering inferno. My ink so hot it burned through the journal. I'm black at midnight on Broadway and Myrtle. Hip hop past all your tall social hurdles like the nationwide pride. This prison industry complex Working class poor Better keep your alarm set Streets too loud To ever hear freedom ring Say you're back in with your sleep It's dangerous to dream But your chain cats Get they chabow You dead now Killing fields need blood To graze the cash cow It's a numbers game But shit don't add up somehow Like I got 16 to 32 bars To rock it With only 15% of profits Ever seen my pockets Like 69 billion In the last 20 years Spent on national defense But folks still live in fear Like nearly half of America's largest cities Is one quarter the black, that's why they gave Ricky Ross all the crap. 16 ounces to a pound, 20 more to a key. A five minute sentence hearing, and you're no longer free. 40% of Americans own a cell phone, so they can hear everything that you say when you ain't home. I guess Michael Jackson was right. You are not alone. Rock your hard hat black as you in the terror dome. Full of hard niggas, large niggas, dice tumblers. Young teens in prison greens facing life numbers. Crack mothers, crack babies, and AIDS patients. Young bloods can't spell, but they can rock you at PlayStation. Snoo map is with my mother. Fuck his ass. You wanna know how to rhyme? You better learn how to add. It's mathematics. Mighty most definitely. It's simple mathematics. Check it out. I revolve around science. What are we talking about here? Mighty most definitely. It's simple mathematics. Check it out. I revolve around science. What are we talking about here? Two sides to every story, three strikes and you bitten for life Mandatory, four MCs murdered in the last four years I ain't trying to be the fifth when the millennium is here Yo, it's six million ways to die From the seven deadly thrills Eight-year-olds getting found with nine mils It's 10 p.m. where your C's at What's the deal? They on the hill pumping krills To keep their bellies filled Lighting the ass with heavy steel Sights on the pretty shit in life Young soldiers trying to earn their next strike When the average minimum wage is 5.15 You best believe you gotta find a new grind to get cream The white Unemployment rate is nearly more than triple for black So frontliners got their gun in your back Bubble and crack Jewel theft and robbery to combat poverty And end up in the global jail economy Stiffer stipulations attached to each sentence Budget cutbacks but increased police presence And even if you get out of prison Still living, join the other five million Under state supervision This is business No faces, just lines and statistics From your phone, your zip code to SSI digits The system break man channeling women in the figures Two columns for who is and who ain't Niggas, numbers is hard and real and they never have feelings But you push too hard, even numbers got limits Why the one straw break the camel back, here's the secret The million other straws underneath it, it's all mathematics Mighty most <laughs> It's simple mathematics Check it out I revolve around science What are we talking about here? Mighty most definitely It's simple mathematics Check it out Mathematics, 
बजते आन के साई तेरे रोजते आन के साई पानी ये
you know, I haven't openly advertised that I'm Muslim, but it is something that I definitely want to be a little bit more vocal about just because I want people to know that we exist in the industry and that I'm proud to represent my community and where I'm from. And I think that that informs my musical storytelling. While the prospect of that has been difficult in the past, it pales in comparison to the idea of being a representative of my own community and the judgment that I will receive from them thereafter. I couldn't care really what anybody else thinks, but I do care a lot about how I reflect upon my community and whether they would approve or disapprove of that. Do you feel that at all? I absolutely do. I, um, as an, I, yeah, like I said before, I found myself in like a, when I moved out, first moved out of home, um, in a very like, uh, practicing like Muslim crowd. And as soon as I started DJing, they all kind of fell away. And I was shocked because I was like, I don't know, Islam is so about community and it's all about, you know, no one gets left behind. Everyone kind of, you know, it, it's fully a com- like a community based religion. And so it was so shocking to me to see, like, as soon as I started DJing, that, um, they would just literally fall away like flies, not even have people that I was, you know, that, you know, I was so close with um, ever check up on me. And I knew, you know, like, like the people who did still talk to me, they would be like, oh yeah, like they're talking shit. And I'm like, cool. Like, I don't know if you, I like I follow kind of like a few like religious accounts on like Instagram and I just remember this one time, like, there's an Instagram page called Muslim where he posts, like, kind of, like, affairs in the Muslim world and, like, really funny Muslim TikToks. And there was just this really funny TikTok of this dude dancing and all the comments were hating on him being, like, oh, I don't know what this is. This is not my religion. Like, kafirs only move like that and shit. Like, just really horrendous things. And this dude was just having a little bit of a boogie with, like, a very, like, um, it was like a, I don't know, like a Islamically related TikTok as well. Um, And I just, it it made me so sad to see that. And that was judgment from our own community, like the Muslim community. So... Definitely, I get scared of it. Um, but then, I don't know, I, in my brain, I'm like, you know, backbiting and judgment, it's not in our religion. Um, judgment is literally left for God to do. And so anyone who does it, it's, it's not their place. And so that's kind of how I have gone forward with my life. Do you take strength from uh, seeing other Muslim creatives? Like for me, I see people like, uh, you know, Sama Abdul Hadi from, you know, Palestine. Um, I see people like Mos Def, um, uh, you know, Yasin Bey. And like a lot of, uh, to be honest, one thing that does give me a lot of strength is seeing a lot of the American hip hop guys that are Muslim. Uh, and the American Muslim experience, like the African American Muslim experience is obviously really interesting. It has its own political context. Um, you know, even people like Freddie Gibbs. Yeah. I, I don't know, every time I see that um, there's a successful person that's a Muslim, absolutely, makes me feel stronger. Um, don't know why, but it does. Hopefully that's going to increase in the future. And um, I'm looking forward to both of us being part of that movement, particularly in Australia. Deepa, thank you so much for coming onto the show today. Um, thanks for being so transparent and honest. Thank you for sharing your experiences and um, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule as well. Um, All the best with your gigs coming up. 
and uh, I hope to see you in Sydney soon. Thank you for having me. I appreciate this chat. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Curfew Radio on Area 3000. My name is Itty and it's been a pleasure to host this month's episode. If there's anything from the episode that you'd like to chat about further, do not hesitate to reach out to me on Instagram at Itty underscore. Beyond Radio Curfew is an Australia-wide collective that aims to platform South Asian excellence. If you like what you hear, be sure to follow us on Instagram at curfew underscore AU. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time. Allah peace.